0: We turn to God's word as we read that in the gospel as recorded by Mark. Mark chapter 16. Pilate has been assured that Jesus of Nazareth has died. And We read in 45, when he knew it and was assured of it, of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph, and they, of course, laid Jesus in the sepulchre, hewn out of the rock, which was Joseph's own sepulchre. Now, verse chapter 16, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come. And anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, "Be not affrighted. ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were, for they were afraid. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believe not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's, of course, the travelers on the road to Emmaus, as you find recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And they went and they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed (coughs) they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with, that is, Due to their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents. And if they drink any (laughs) deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following Amen. In other words, verily, verily, these things of which Mark has testified are true. And here we are again on Sunday morning. what? The 43rd, 44th Lord's Day of the year of our Lord, 2022, this is the first day of the week. Why? Why are you here? You may say, that's how I was raised. And it's a good practice. There are good people to come together with, at least most of them. And I benefit from it. So every Lord's Day again, here I am. A better answer, of course, would be because it is the law of God, and the fourth commandment requires one day out of seven, and I will keep the law of God, and so here I am, Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And that's not a bad answer, certainly attending The Lord's house on the first day of the week is according to the law of God, and it's proper to do that which the Lord requires. But I trust, beloved, you are here, we are here, for more reasons than simply, well, this is what the law of God requires scribes and Pharisees, you know, kept the Sabbath day on a regular basis because the law of God required it and they would put on the appearance of keeping the law of God. I trust, beloved, that in addition to your desire to keep the law of God, you are here because you desire to be here. It is your desire to bring to the Lord God Lord's day by Lord's day and week by week worship and praise and to hearken to his word to be instructed as to his mercies but also as to your calling. And so you are here because it arises from your heart and your desire. But The question I asked, first of all, was this. Why are we here on the first day of the week? On Sunday. The Fourth Commandment, after all, says the seventh day. And yet we as Christians gather on the first day of the week. Do we not then transgress the law? God forbid, but we keep the law. We gather, beloved, on the first day of the week because our Lord and Savior arose on the first day of the week. And we are declaring in part thereby that the one whom we worship and whose name we confess is a living Lord. He has risen from the dead. The one we confess is alive and well and ruling even now from God's right hand. But we also gather on the first day of the week because his resurrection, beloved, is the beginning of a new creation. He arises to make all things new. He himself is the first of that which is new the new creation, that sun of righteousness, that light of the world. And then we also love our new creatures. And as new creatures, we will testify to those about us our living Lord is the Lord of creation. He who believeth in him shall be saved. He who will not worship him as the Lord of the new creation shall perish when this old creation is judged and condemned and perishes. But thanks be to God, not I, not you, because we belong, beloved, and are united to one who has risen from the dead and who lives. And because he lives, we have a gospel truth and we know we shall live also, even if death takes us, we shall yet live. With that in mind, beloved, we consider the wonder of Christ's resurrection. In the first place, seeing that it is one of those great mysteries, one of those great mysteries. Explain that. That it's vital for God's covenant and displaying the power of the cross. That's according to the Catechism, Lord's Day 17. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection he over has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, this is the prophet. We are also, by his power, raised up to a new life. And lastly, this also is the benefit of his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Those three truths tie in, beloved, with the wonder of Christ's bodily <coughs> resurrection. Resurrection. On the first day of the week, some two thousand years ago, something altogether wonderful, incredibly powerful, and earth shaking and creation. Renewing took place. Beloved, <coughs> a, a tomb suddenly went empty. A single resident of that tomb simply up and left, vanishing in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, his body there wrapped in linen, and suddenly the linen clothing empty and flat, and the body had vanished. Death, beloved, had been swallowed up in victory. Jesus of Nazareth arose from the dead and dealt death. The undisputed champion of the world that none dared to contend with no more than with Goliath of old was dealt a stunning blow. And the son of David, who is the heir of Abraham and the seed of the woman had the victory and death itself beloved was dealt by the power of life and lost its hold and became from a certain point of view a prison house with the gates Open and fissures, fissures beloved in the foundation and in the wall. Jesus of Nazareth arose from the dead, and in principle, all things were made new. I say in principle, of course, because with his resurrection. The newness of all things was not yet accomplished, but when he arose from the dead, the decisive blow had been dealt to death itself so that death itself, from a certain point of view, would die, but also a decisive reality concerning the new creation. Christ Jesus, the first element of this new creation, promised, and because he, raised his body from the dead, immortal and corruptible, it was inevitable and is inevitable that one day there will be an entirely new creation. Old things have passed away. The resurrection of Christ Jesus is gospel news. It is good news. It is that which turns despair into hope and sorrow into joy, and a joy, beloved, that is almost inexpressible. If you question that, read the gospel accounts concerning the disciples. what happened to them on the first day of the week, where they were at (coughs) early in the morning on the first day of the week, with their weeping and their sorrow and their really overwhelming despair. All is lost. Why go on? And then he appears to them, peace be unto you, and It is, beloved, a joy so wonderful that we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 14, and while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you any food? It was a thing so incredible, so full of joy they couldn't even bring themselves to believe it. Something this wonderful, this soul-stirring that changes despair into hope can't be true. It can't be true, can it? And you can see him almost smiling at them. But it is. Give me food and touch me and know that I have, am true. And it has really, really occurred, beloved, not defeat and despair and death now, but life, and not simply life back as it previously was, but life everlasting that is beyond the power of death and condemnation once and for all. When I read the resurrection accounts, and have preached them over the years. There's a phrase that has come to my mind, and that phrase is this, beloved, O Lord, what a morning. I don't know if you can catch hold of that, that joy, the joy that the disciples had when there before their wondering eyes stood their Lord and Savior Jesus in the body. In reality, not a spirit, not a ghost, but the one they knew and who so loved them. Let me just give you a couple of examples that may give you some sense and us some sense of this joy. I might imagine, beloved, a young couple married for who knows how many years and no children and then maybe after 10, 15 years Lo and behold, the, the news is she's expecting. My wife is expecting. And there is a carrying of the of the child and it's a very tenuous nine months with doubts and fears whether the child in the womb would develop properly and was developing <coughs> properly and she'd be able to carry the child and then prior to the time they were going to induce it for the safety of the child, labor pangs. And they go to the hospital and she labors during the night. And there comes a point where he's even excused from the hospital room because of blood pressure and all the rest and issues. And he waits in the waiting room. And in the dawning of the day, the pediatrician comes through and he says, good news, the child is healthy and safe, come hold your firstborn son and all the vital signs of your wife are good and stable and it looks like she's going to make it and the child too. And he goes out of the hospital room having held his firstborn. He leans against the wall and the sun is rising in the east and he says, oh Lord, what a morning thank thee for thy goodness and thy mercy and keeping not only the child but my wife in the land of the living for this example you get a call as a parent in the middle of the night one of your children had a night shift and the news is there's been a serious accident and the child has been airlifted to a hospital say in Sioux Falls and you better come now because it's serious and you get there and the surgeons are there and the doctors and you sit and you wait for hours <laughs> and then in the dawning of the morning, after how many hours, the surgeon comes, takes his gloves off and his mask and he says, it's looking better. I got the internal ble- bleeding stopped vital signs are stable and looks as though he's going to make it. You stand out as the sun is rising and you say, Oh Lord, what a morning. Thanks be to the Lord for this goodness shown in the land of the living. But now let's take that same example. You get the call in the night and you go to the hospital and you're told it's serious and there's internal bleeding bleeding and even some head damage as well. And towards the dawning of the day, after how many hours, the doctor comes and he takes his mask off and he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We did all that we could. We couldn't get all the internal bleeding. And he underwent cardiac arrest and we lost him. Dead. Now, now, beloved, where are you at? Despair? Hopeless despair? The overwhelming of the grief? Will I go on? Is there not yet a gospel? Is there not yet a gospel? And is this not? The Gospel, beloved, since by man came death, so by man came the resurrection of the life, and as in Adam all die, yet in Christ shall all be made alive. And this I know concerning myself and my loved one who was a believer, my and his her redeemer liveth, and though flesh and though worms destroy this body, yet in our flesh, in mine and in his and hers, we shall yet see God. Now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that sleep. And this, my loved one, who has been taken from me. Sleeps. He has died, she has died, but he sleeps. And there's going to come a day of a grand reunion and the resurrection from the dead. And even now, with respect to this loved one, all is well with his soul because he is with his living Lord and Savior. This I know and believe and confess. And though there is the current of grief, it cannot remove the current and the anchor of my hope and my (coughs) deepest joy and expectation. The gospel, beloved, of the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the meaning of that empty grave and who it was that arose from that grave. Again, I say consider the disciples on that first Sunday morning, which is really in some ways the beginning almost of the whole of the New Testament age, and they went from despair and sorrow to hope and joy, and a joy that was so inexpressible they couldn't even hardly dare to believe and hope in the joy, but there he was, and all was well with their souls when all was said and done. Beloved, I show you a mystery. That's the chosen word in this first point, a mystery. In Scripture, there are certain grand gospel truths that for, for which that phrase is reserved, just a handful of them, a mystery, doctrines and truths that are mysteries doctrines and truths that are absolutely vital, of course, for the Christian truth and reality and faith. Fundamental, if you will, but things that are really beyond our comprehension and understanding and so wonderful that when it comes to the Old Testament, those who were Old Testament believers really couldn't understand them in any clear way and really in some ways were confused concerning them, and truths that waited for the coming of Christ himself to reveal himself, and then for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to enable his disciples to begin to understand why they were so fundamental and that they were embedded in the Old Testament scriptures. The Holy Spirit opening the understanding, but tying in with Christ himself and the event of his death and resurrection, waiting to make these truths clear, if you will. The incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness, says 1 Timothy chapter 4. That is, of the true religion. Great is the mystery of, of the Christian religion, the true religion. What is that great mystery? God. God manifested himself in the flesh. One person being both God and man. God becoming man and yet not ceasing to be God at the same time. Tying in with the virgin birth, which was something, beloved, the Old Testament believers could not comprehend or understand until it actually occurred. And then it becomes clear why there needed to be the virgin birth and who the Messiah actually would be, not simply the son of David, but the son of God in the flesh coming from the line of David. Or the mystery of the bringing in of the Gentiles, concerning which Paul re- writes in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, that it was, this was committed to him. And it wasn't that the Old Testament saints did not know that in time the nations were to be brought into the true religion. But this they didn't understand. That the Gentiles would be saved as Gentiles, and didn't have to become Jews and be circumcised and (coughs) remove themselves from all the unclean meat and begin to continue to keep certain laws of Moses. That was beyond them. But the mystery of that gospel, beloved, that we were brought in, and that all things happened to Israel, even to its falling away, with us in mind. A great mystery that waited for the New Testament. And the, and the making plain of that by the Holy Spirit himself, embedded in the Old Testament, but only understood properly in the day of the New Testament. But this one too, beloved, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks of that mystery, of course. I Behold, I show you a mystery we shall not all We shall all be raised in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But that mystery, beloved, of the resurrection of the body of the saints ties in with this fundamental mystery and the resurrection of Christ himself from the dead. That was something, as we read, that the disciples, New Testament, Old Testament believers, could not grasp or understand. They were filled with this overwhelming grief so that when others came to them and told them, angels spoke to us, the grave is empty, they told us he rose from the dead, they could not bring themselves to believe it. It was beyond them. Why couldn't they bring themselves to believe it? Beloved, that resurrection from the dead. Because they did not understand, of course, the significance of the cross at that time. That the Messiah himself had to die. They knew the Messiah had to come, and he had to have the victory, and he had to defeat their enemy. And as the Messiah, he would make the great sacrifice for sin, but himself be the sacrifice? Remember what the two travelers said to Jesus as they did not know him? We thought he was going to be the Messiah but he's dead. And now all our hope has vanished. How can it be that the Messiah would die and remain to be the Messiah? Death is defeat and loss and hope has vanished from the world. And this fellow who walked along with them opened the scriptures and said, you don't understand the scriptures, do you? As you had. And beginning with the law Old Prophets, he spoke about the need and the importance of the cross, <coughs> of the sacrifice for sin. And that it wasn't simply the Messiah would make sacrifices for sin, but that he himself had to be the sacrifice for sin, and why that was fundamentally important, or they could not in the end be saved. The blood of bulls and goats would postpone judgment, but the blood of bulls and goats could not pay for the sins of a man. And the lights began to go on. Abide with us, tis even die. continue to explain these things to us, you who understand the scriptures. And then he reveals himself to their eyes. And filled with joy, they run back with the news. And we read in Mark, and neither did they believe them. Until you understand, beloved, the purpose and the significance of the cross, what's the need for the resurrection? Why would he die in the first place? Why did he need to be raised in from the dead? And so they were filled with this grief due to the lack of understanding. And yet, beloved, it wasn't merely a matter of lack of understanding, was it? Because we read that Jesus upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. In part, of course, as we read, because they believed not them who had seen him after he was risen. But don't forget, they not only didn't believe them, really, in the end, they didn't believe Jesus. Because prior to his death, as you know from your gospel knowledge, he had told them, they're going to put me to death, and in three days I shall rise again. Interesting, you know, the unbelieving Jews didn't forget that. That's why they had Pilate make sure you seal that tomb. Keep him dead. Because if he arises from the dead, the last shall be worse than what we have dealt with. The last shall be worse than what we've dealt with to this point. Who will not believe him in the end? Keep him dead. The unbelieving Jews hadn't forgotten. And in his own disciples, had just kind of, Dismissed it because after all, Lord Jesus, if you die, how can you possibly establish the kingdom, which is supposed to, of course, be earthly as well? We need an earthly king, do we not? They didn't understand. So they even dismissed, you know, the words of Christ Jesus himself. But this is there too, beloved. They sold short the power of God. And of the Son of God when it comes to death and life. They were really in some ways in the category of King Agrippa, to whom Paul preached later. Why should it be thought to you a thing incredible, Agrippa, that God should raise the dead? My disciples, news was brought to you concerning my resurrection. Why should you think it a thing unbelievable incredible that God should raise the dead? that I, whom you say and confess to be the Son of God, could not raise myself, because that's what it came down to, you know. They knew about resurrection. Jesus himself had raised Lazarus, and he'd raised a couple others too, some children as well, you know. This is the first resurrection from the dead. But no one has ever raised himself. It was always prophets or Christ who raised others. Who can raise Jesus. There's no prophet to do that. And Jesus, as it were, is saying to them, so you'll think that though I'm the son of God, I cannot and could not raise myself. You sell short the power of God. I have that power. But now understand, I have that power because I have that right. And that right was gained for myself and for you by my death on the cross. My work on the cross is what gives me the right to use my power in the resurrection of my own body from the dead to assure you in the end of your resurrection as well. And don't you see, beloved, that is what the catechism is getting at in that first aspect of what doth the resurrection of Christ profit us By his resurrection he has overcome death, that in order that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. In other words, beloved, his resurrection is the seal of his perfect work upon the cross. It's the seal, you know, we we read he was raised for our justification. Well, the resurrection itself doesn't justify us. It's the death on the cross and the payment of the blood on the cross and the serving of the sentence for our sins that justifies us is the basis for our being counted righteous before God, to accomplish that. But the resurrection is the seal upon that work, isn't it? That that work was perfect, that he accomplished all that God required of him and our stead and our He served the fullness of the sentence, and not one sin, one debt, went unpaid for. There was a complete accounting, and his work of suffering God's wrath in our stead, as you read of in Lord's Day 16, was full and complete and perfect, and the resurrection is the testimony that that was true because if he had lacked in one aspect of dying for his own, the atonement, his body would have remained in the grave. His continued death would have been the sign from God. He was not fully pleased with the work on the cross. But now is Christ risen from the dead because his work was perfect. The atonement was complete <laughs> and he has the right You see, to raise his body as the head of the church, meaning that the rest of the body someday would follow. But based upon the righteousness of his work and the fullness of that atonement. So raised for our justification. And that's the gospel in the end to the disciples as well. Not simply, look, I'm back with you, to converse with you again and have fellowship with you again, there, there was some truth to that. But this is what I am telling you as I appear before you. Your sins have been paid for, every last one of them. I have served the fullness of God's wrath. And you need not fear death as being a sign of condemnation. My resurrection says, the condemnation has been removed. And when you die, you'll be taken to glory because your sins indeed have been paid for, every last one of them. My resurrection, the resurrection of my body, is God's testimony that, that is sure, have comfort and fear not. The hope beloved, of the gospel A gospel so good that the disciples could not keep it to themselves in the end, could they? And they went forth, as we read in Mark, preaching the gospel of a living Lord, of a living Savior. And this he has done for me and for us. Believe that you might know he has done it for you as well. That, in the first place, beloved, that gospel is why you say, Oh, Lord, what a morning, the significance of that resurrection concerning the perfection of his atoning work that we don't have to somehow (coughs) supplement it with our own payment because, of course, we would end up in everlasting condemnation. It has been accomplished perfect. And we cannot and need not add anything to that atoning work as the basis for our redemption and salvation. In the second place, understand, beloved, that this wonder of the resurrection is vital for the covenant. And that should not be so difficult to understand when you consider, beloved, that the resurrection has to do with life life restored and relationships destroyed relationships restored as well and isn't that the covenant as well god's covenant has to do with life and not simply existence of being living but relationships of friendship and fellowship wasn't that exactly the calamity of the death of adam and eve they sinned and they drove a wedge into that covenant and that fellowship and to that relationship and they died. And as death you have in death you have no fellowship with God, even if you're alive spiritually dead, you have no fellowship with God. That had to be removed. That sin, that trespass, that fellowship might be restored and experienced once again. The covenant has everything to do, beloved, with personal relationships and Fellowship, but for that to exist following and to be true following the sin of Adam and Eve, it had to be restored. Well, the resurrection, beloved, speaks of that restoration. He returns to life, not so to he himself, but for the sake of his disciples and people to have fellowship with him and to show himself to be their friend. But not only to have fellowship as he had it in the past, but to take that fellowship and to raise it to a new and higher level beyond that which it was in the past, beyond that which Adam and Eve experienced in the Garden of Eden itself. So he has a body that is immortal and incorruptible, raised to the heavenly, raising that fellowship, you see, to a new and higher level. He underscores that, you know, when he speaks to the multitude in <coughs> connection with the temple, if you recall that phrase. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And we read, they mocked. Now he said this, of course, in response to their their unbelief and their praising their temple as though it was such a special place that proved the superiority of their Jewish religion because we have this magnificent temple in which we can have fellowship with God, supposedly superior to all that of all the other nations. And Christ says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And they, they mock. It took our fathers 40 years long to build this temple. And you think as a madman you can raise it up in three days? Who do you think you are? Even the disciples must have thought, This time he had probably gone a little bit too far in his exaggerations and hyperboles and so. But you know what's written in that record, don't you? By one who was on the other side of the resurrection. But this he spoke concerning his body and his resurrection. When he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again... He wasn't saying, you know, that this temple is the ultimate. And he wasn't referring to building, rebuilding that temple should it be destroyed. He was saying this temple was only ever meant to be temporal and temporary and is not the highest elevation of worship and fellowship With God. In fact, it is meant in the end to be destroyed and removed and to be replaced. And I, as you look at me, am the replacement when all is said and done. There was something that impeded fellowship, of course, in that temple, not only in Herod's temple, but even in Solomon's temple and in the tabernacle itself, and it was that veil, wasn't it? And that veil represented sin. And the holiest of all was. Closed to the people of God. Only a high priest could go through once a year with blood and then remove himself again. There was a certain fellowship, but it was from a certain point of view an impoverished fellowship because of that veil. That veil had to be removed. Who could remove the veil? We know what removed that veil. Christ Jesus suffers on the cross he endures the wrath of God in the darkness. And then the light shones again and he says, it is finished. My perfect work is finished. Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. And there is this great earthquake, earth shaking, and the veil of the temple is rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Signifying the end of the usefulness of this temple, displaying, of course, its bankruptcy as that old temple, but also making plain that a new way has been made into the holiest of all. And the veil is removed. And now there is direct access into the holiest of all, into the presence of God in the name of this Jesus, based upon his blood. And it is a fellowship fuller and more complete, you understand, than that of the Old Testament. And it is covenant fellowship, even raised above the level of of that of Adam and Eve because it has to do with that which is immortal and heavenly and those who come have been by the blood <coughs> counted as righteous, fully righteous and all the blemishes and imperfections removed as well. The glory of the resurrection but you can tie in with that, this just one more phrase in connection with that covenant Interesting that in the book of the Revelation, he's called the first begotten of the dead. The first begotten of the dead, Revelation chapter 1, prince of the kings of the earth. Notice, not simply the first one who raised himself from the dead, though that's true, but the first begotten. The grave likened to a womb, so that I enter death that I might in some ways be born again, my body might be born again and raised from the dead, immortal and incorruptible. Begotten beloved means he's the firstborn. Adam sinned and died and was planted in the earth and could accomplish nothing as our first parent, except to bring upon us the sentence of death. But the second Adam, the seed of the woman planted in the earth, comes forth as the first begotten, the firstborn, the heir the love. The heir of what? Of the whole of creation. And with the power of his new body to make all things new. In the interest of what? Of the covenant, the love. Of our fellowship. If we're going to have fellowship with God in new bodies, we're going to need a place, are we not? We're going to have to have that fellowship someplace with God and with one another. Where? What is adequate for fellowship with those who have immortal, incorruptible bodies? Not this old earth. A new creation. A whole new world, beloved. Brought to pass by the power, you see, of Christ who has risen from the dead. (coughs) Him the beginning. And then from him by his power, the whole of a new creation that we might have a new place, a new world. To enjoy the covenant of God with him, with Jesus, and one with another as well. Oh beloved, what a morning and the significance of what Christ accomplished on that first Sunday morning. that all in the end is a display of the power of the cross, that is, of the rights that Jesus has as our head the right to accomplish certain things for us, not only, but in us and then with us in mind. And those two things are listed, you know, by the catechism when it says, secondly, we are by his power raised to a new life. And then, lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. In other words, the power of the cross is that it gave Christ the right to grant to us new life. Not simply when we die and go to heaven, but as we live here on earth. The difference, beloved, the difference that the life of Christ makes in a man. Don't undersell that. I fear sometimes we're underselling, that, under, misunderstanding that and selling it short. What Christ accomplishes in his own, in this life. Ever hear of a man named Saul of Tarsus? Familiar with him? What about Paul the Apostle? Familiar with him? Now if this was a catechism class, you know what I'd do? I'd ask, would somebody answer that? Is that the same person? Was Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle the same person? I could hear someone say no. No, he wasn't. I could hear somebody say yes. Of course it was. Same identity. It's the same man. And yet beloved. Though he had the same identity from a certain point of view was the same man. He was fundamentally changed and altered, wasn't he? And the one whom he had hated... And the ones he had hated was the one whom he now loved and those who followed him as well. And he went about his rest of his life doing what? Good. Don't tell me, beloved, that Paul the Apostle did not go about doing good. I didn't say perfect. I said good, that arose from his heart and by his faith and had the Advantage and the benefit of the body of Christ in mind. Others in mind. And the imperfections cleansed by the blood. We are new creatures by the power of this resurrection. And that new (coughs) aspiration and that new man, beloved, begins to show itself on the first day of the week. This is where it starts in many ways, hearkening to God's word, hearing what Christ has done for us, what Christ makes of us, and what our calling is as a result, beginning on the first day of the week. How do you know whether a man is an unbeliever? He has no interest in the Lord's day, as the Lord's day, and going to worship Jehovah God and bringing him homage and praise. Some may go and simply have an outward appearance, but I mean he has no real inner desire to be here and to worship. A man who has the desire, you know, this is the beginning of a new work. And from this day, the rest of the life will follow as that, and we hearken to the word of God. All ties in, beloved, with the power of of the resurrection and the beginning of that newness of life already in this life and in our walk here below. And then in the end it has to do with the promise of the resurrection of the body. It's a sure pledge of our blessed (coughs) resurrection. And that's why the loved can face death Can hear the surgeon come and say, We did what we could beyond our power. He died. And yet we may say, Christ hath arisen from the dead. He is risen from the dead, and we have hope unto everlasting life. And though this death means farewell for now, we shall see each other someday and the face of Jesus. And I go on in hope and confidence, comforted, beloved, in that reality. First Thessalonians chapter six verses four, 16 and seventeen for the Lord Himself shall descend he from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which we are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet with the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Lord haste that day. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And Lord, what a morning that's going to be. When that final resurrection takes place all of the just men and women made perfect shall gather and behold Jesus face to face. You'll be there, will you not? Live by faith and confidence in his name. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks for the gospel, write it upon our hearts, and may we, display the life of Christ begun in us by the power of thy grace and Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.